They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are... Primetime Pod and Chad, the two This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, and I am Chad, and today's episode is brought to you by Bombas, the mind-blowing athletic leisure sock with a mission to help those in need. And with that being said, I welcome in my tag team partner, primetime John Paz. John, how are you doing today? Hey, yo, what's going on, Chad? How are you doing? Doing very well, my friend, and today on the show, we have the former creative writer for the WWF and also the WCW, Mr. Ed Ferrara, and what a great guest you brought to the table, my friend, in Ed Ferrara, because he's a guy who I feel is quite possibly guilty by association, Oh, I totally, totally agree on that. It almost seems unfairingly guilty by association, and people kind of uh, put him in with the wrong character as far as who he is, because he is one of the nicest guys that I've ever gotten the chance to meet, especially as far as in the wrestling business. What a nice guy. What a class act, and a uh, great teacher as well. Yeah, you t- you had the uh, ability to take one of his uh, creative writing classes, which is very cool. Excuse me, screenwriting classes, which is very cool. Uh, but in talking to him about what he's done in wrestling, um, and of course we are not dwelling on any kind of negative because he is a fantastic, fantastic individual. Uh, I just feel like some of the criticism is unjust, uh, just because it's kind of the uh, the cool thing to do is just to jump on the bandwagon and bash people. Uh, based off of what other people say, and that's not to say what their opinion they have is wrong. It's just that getting to talk to him and speak to him, he's intelligent. Uh, he's very confident in what he's talking about. And uh, quite frankly, some of the things he did are, hmm, I don't know, some of the biggest things that happened in the Attitude Era. And that's something that we definitely get a chance to cover because we get to talk in depth about uh, angles with The Rock, uh, what some of his favorite angles were uh, participating in, and basically what it was like uh, working day-to-day in the Attitude Era with Vince McMahon and the creative writing staff. Yeah, that that was possibly the, I don't know about the best part, but almost uh, one of my favorite parts of the interview was going in-depth and basically getting in his mind as he's sitting in there, you know, and basically a meeting or, you know, like a pre, pre-show, pre-roll tape, you know, getting ready for the show. And it's him and Russo and it's Vince McMahon. They're going over Monday Night Raw. I mean, that's just great. That was very, very cool to get behind-the-scenes look at that. That was, that was one of my favorite parts of the interview. Yes, I mean, it's just so cool because he was really right there uh, for the whole thing. And the, you know, we covered the jump to WCW, but not in a great deal of detail because it's been beaten to death. And, you know, that's something that I think we try to not do on this show is just beat the same horse to death over and over. And and quite frankly, you know, it's like I said, it's almost like, you you know, you're guilty by association, but it's also the cool thing to do is just throw the same people under the bus for things that may or may not be true. But, you know, the one thing I can definitely say about talking to, to Ed is that he's a awesome, awesome thinker. And what he talks about as his favorite angle from the Attitude Era, I think if you lined up ten fans and they said what were what was their favorite angle, I think we'd almost all, you know, unanimously come up with the same exact one. Oh yeah, he's it's so cool that like he was that in depth, and maybe a lot of people don't know exactly what he was involved in the Attitude Era. But obviously, if you listen to the interview, you'll find out, and uh, it may or may not involve The Rock, and and he might. Uh, well, yeah, he might. He he definitely goes into great detail about it and great detail about what he was 
I wouldn't say responsible for, but almost directly responsible for because it's it's him. It's it was Russo and it was and it was Vince McMahon, but a lot of ideas were basically thrust onto him, and he's got to portray it, and Vince has to like it, and so on and so forth. So I mean, he's not like giving himself a pat on the back. He's just being straightforward and honest about you know what he did and what his role was with the company at the time. And it was also cool to talk a little bit about Oklahoma, the controversial character in WWE, <laughs> because uh, it's always a fun topic. To me, especially, it's always a fun topic. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's another thing. It's been, uh, you know, kind of said to be a, a, a real big negative, um, but him and JR have seemed to patch it up and move on past it because it seems like JR gets a bigger kick out of it than has been portrayed. Uh, in current, uh, you know, maybe WWE Monday Night War, um, you know, d- documentary form, they seem to really hang on that, that it was, uh, you know, quite nasty, which, um, you know, Ed talks about. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to give it away anymore. It just, it's a great, it's a great interview. It's a great look into the mind of Ed Ferrar. He was very, very cool, very gracious. And we look forward to hopefully having him back. So with that being said, prime time, I'm going to toss you a softball in the air, and I hope when you hit it out of the park, on the other side there's going to be some nice information about where you can find the two-man power trip of wrestling. Oh, yeah, here we go, some plugs. Of course, two-man power trip on Facebook. You can like us. Please subscribe to us on YouTube as well as iTunes. Also, follow us on the Twitter machine at Wrestling Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. And check out our website, ptfwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And without further ado, let's kick it to the great, legendary writer and personal friend of the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling, Oklahoma himself, Ed Ferrara. And, John, we're going to welcome in our new sponsor, Bombas. And the Bombas mission is simple. For every pair of socks purchased, a pair is donated to the homeless. And to date, that's over 300,000 pair of socks donated to the homeless. And right now you can go to bombas.com slash T-M-P-T-O-W to take 20% off your order. Again, it's bombas.com slash T-M-P-T-O-W, all lowercase, to take 20% off your first order. And, Chad, my favorite feature of this awesome premium leisure athletic sock is the honeycomb support system. They keep you cool in the summer and warm in the winter. It really helps support my feet. i got to be honest, I do jujitsu, and I did try to get a lot of cardio in at the gym, and, boy, I never found a comfortable sock. I really needed this, so I went and I got a pair of Bombas and never looked back. They're literally the world's most perfect sock. Go to bombas.com slash T-M-P-T-O-W for 20% off your order. Bombas, be better. They are the better sock. It's not every day that we get to dive deep into the mind of a man who helped give an era of pro wrestling its voice and its attitude. But tonight, we welcome in a man who has been a writer, a booker, an agent, an announcer, and even, yes, a wrestler. Maybe even more importantly than all that, he's a teacher of the next generation of screenwriters. And with that being said, Ed Ferrara, we welcome you to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Thank you so much, guys. That was, that was probably one of the most awesome intros I've ever been given. That was really cool. Thank you very much. It's very easy when the material writes itself, and amongst all of that, the thing that I really, I really find to be very cool, outside of everything that we're going to get into in the next uh, couple of minutes here, is could you tell us about your, your teaching at Full Sail University and your screenwriting course? Okay. Um, well, uh, Full Sail University, uh, for, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's down here in uh, Winter Park, Florida, right next door to Orlando. And um, it's a really cool school uh, with it, it gears, every, everything that they do there gears toward the entertainment industry. Everything from writing, the, the program that I'm in is the uh, write, uh, Creative Writing for Entertainment Bachelor of Fine Arts program. And um, in that program, 
students kind of take a little bit of everything. They learn some screenwriting. They learn some TV writing. They learn some uh, writing for comic books, writing for games, um, and, and help them kind of uh, get their feet wet in all these different areas and see what they want to pursue when they get out. Um, and the class that I am currently teaching is um, right now I'm covering a class in the master's program, but the class that I'm developing for the for the uh, the creative writing for entertainment bachelor's program right now is a is a television writing class. Uh, there already is one, um, but what we're doing is we're adding a second one, and that's the one that I'm going to be doing. That's going to be kind of the introductory uh, the introductory class, and uh, basically teach the students about writing for television, which is a very different animal than writing for the screen, because when you're writing for and when you're writing a screenplay, you're creating the characters. You're creating the world. You're creating the story. You're creating everything. And what you're doing is you're hoping that somebody will buy the screenplay that you've written. But television is very different because you're not necessarily creating a script that you're hoping someone will buy. What you're doing is you're writing scripts and hoping that somebody will buy you. Because in television, what you're doing is you're writing for shows where the characters are already developed. The, the world of the show is already developed. So you, in order to succeed as a TV writer, you have to be able to more effectively play in somebody else's sandbox and be able to develop stories for characters that have already been introduced and already have a, a, a wealth of, of development behind them, and you have to kind of fit the voice of the show. So it's very different, whereas in screenwriting, you're doing your own thing, Television writing, you have to kind of, you have to be malleable and be able to write in different styles and be able to write uh, different stories for characters that already exist and, and, and shows that already exist. And how receptive is a class of college students to that process? Does it take a lot to kind of beat that into their brain? Yeah, it, it, it kind of does, and not for the reasons that you may think, but because they've been taking so many other classes where it's more along the lines of they're writing short stories or they're writing, they're working on screenplays or ideas for screenplays or video games or original comic book properties. So by the time they get the TV writing class and they learn, well, TV is a completely different animal and it's about reverse engineering something that already exists, in order to write the most effective script, it kind of throws them completely off their game. So that's one of the other reasons why we're develop I'm developing this other class, so, so that way they have more experience in this area, especially since also, you know, in television, you know, that's where there's a ton of jobs these days. You know, with, with beyond the networks and the off networks and, 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 and basic cable, then you've got all these, you know, you have like Netflix and Amazon and uh, Hulu that are all producing original content, original scripted content, and all these shows, they need staffs, they need writers. So these are all the more opportunities that young writers have to break into the industry because there's all the more different platforms for them to be to, to get noticed by. So that's what we're really trying to do is give, give the students a, a more of a, a solid chance uh, to get work after they graduate. And one of the areas that, they need, that, that you know, I'm a big proponent of them focusing on is television. I just met with a bunch of my students yesterday uh, uh, and I was talking with them, you know, past students that are going to be graduating in a couple of months, and uh, a handful of them are going out to L.A. because, you know, that was the thing that I really stressed when I, when I had them a few months back. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I'm really excited about is because it's going to give them more of a chance and a, and a better understanding of writing for television in case it's something that they end up wanting to do. Right, and have you seen since this big influx of this, you know this. You know these long, methodic uh, TV series. Have you seen a large increase in the demand of people who want to get into that side of the business? Um, you know, it, it's the sort of thing where I, I think it's been growing. It's been growing kind of steadily since, like, eh, you know, you want to say the, 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 the you know, the, the late '90s when you know just there's, there's you. you you've been seeing a lot more attention to quality in television. A lot of, you know, the, the, the good work is being done. You've got a lot of really high-quality TV shows, whether you're, whether you're going back to, you know, you want to go back to Twin Peaks in the late 80s, uh, you know, you go, to, you go to Lost, you know, Breaking Bad, uh, Mad Men, these shows that kind of define generations 
Um, and, you know, these are TV shows, whereas, you know, when I was growing up, TV shows were, you know, MASH and Rockford Files. So it, it wasn't really, nobody, nobody's life was being changed. TV was a mindless, uh, much more of a mindless uh, 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 means of passing time, whereas now, you know, the, 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 you can't deny the quality of certain shows that are out there. I mean, there's still plenty of crap out there, don't get me wrong, but there's also, there's a lot of, some of the best, some of the best writing and acting I've ever seen, you know, is now on television, like, like True Detective. I mean, that was one of the best written things I've ever seen, and it had some of the most amazing acting I've ever seen, and this was, you know, an eight-episode series for, uh, season for, for HBO. Now, speaking of writing and everything else, I actually had the opportunity of taking a screenwriting class at the Music and Film Festival over in Asbury Park, New Jersey, with Ed. And anyone out there that's interested in writing and stuff of that nature, I would highly suggest you take a class with Ed because I took two with him, and he was unbelievable, great teacher, and he gave some great advice that I will I always take with me now with the podcast. And we have permission to suck, so that's great advice from Ed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but in all seriousness, you're teaching at Full Sail. Do you ever make your way over to uh, NXT? You know, I have to be honest, uh, and, and I'm not one of those guys that does that everything every every other sentence. But I do have to be. You know, <laughs> it, it's weird to say I'm there. I, you know, like there have been times when I've had to walk past some of their producers when they're in the middle of shooting a pre-tape when I'm trying to get to my class. So I'm there all the time. I have never been to a live event. I only just started watching NXT about a year ago, and it completely just grabbed me. And it was it gave me, you know, what I've been looking for out of, you know, my, my wrestling on TV for a long time. And I, I, right now, it's like, you know, I'll still watch Raw each week. But even that, you know, I, I, I don't have cable. I cut the cord a long time ago. So I got, I've got Hulu. And that's how I watch Raw, which is awesome. It's the best way to watch Raw. It's an hour and a half long. They cut it in <laughs> half. So yep. Now, there's no way, you know, there's, there's no real rhyme reason as to what they include and what they don't include. They include the big segment at the top of each hour. And they include the, the main event segment. And then beyond that, I think they they flip a coin as to what other segments they include and what ones they cut out because sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to it. That said, you know, it's a much more pleasant uh, experience watching it, watching it only for an hour and a half. But, you know, watching NXT for an hour, you know, I say, you know, watching Raw for an hour and a half, it isn't painful. Watching NXT, when that hour is up, I'm like, really? It's an hour, it's over, it's done? I want more which is what we should be like for all of our entertainment. We should always be wanting more as opposed to feeling like, holy Christ, how did I get through that? Which is how I would feel at the end of a three-hour Raw. Um, so, but I've never been to a live show. Uh, one of these days I probably will, um, but I just, I just never have. I, I, I've been much more, much more uh, uh, comfortable watching it in my, in my living room. Uh, um, and able to put my feet up and, and yell whatever I want uh, at the privacy of my own home. Nice. And we're kind of talking <laughs> about um, being a fan basically right now and almost going back to the the beginning. How did you get into the wrestling business? And I know you were a fan growing up in New Jersey, just like us. Yeah. So how, how did you get into the wrestling business? Um, well, it's it, it, it's an interesting story. It was like like you said, John. You know, I was I, I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up right next door to Asbury Park, where you know where we had those uh, the the workshops at the Asbury Park Museum and Film Festival last weekend, um, and Convention Hall in Asbury Park. When I was a kid, uh, WWF would run shows in in Convention Hall in Asbury Park every month. And I would go every single month, and me and my friends, we would, you know, get our autograph pads out, and we would get autographs from all the guys that they were making their way to the rings, and we'd buy the eight by ten pictures from the gimmick table, and all of that. And it was just such a huge part of my childhood. Um, and 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 I never stopped being a fan. I went through phases when I watched more and I watched less. You know, like when I was in high school, when I, you know, kind of discovered girls, then you know, wrestling kind of took a little bit of a backseat, which was cool with me. Um, but then, you know, I would go through phases. And um, one phase where I was particularly obsessed with wrestling was when I was living out in Los Angeles and I was writing uh, for Weird Science on USA Network. And um, 
I was a staff writer on the show, and we had just wrapped one season, and we know we knew we were coming back for another season, and um, you know, so I knew I had work coming up. It wasn't like I had to scramble and look for a new job because this one wasn't going to be coming back. So I had that kind of cushion. So I was just looking for something to do. In the meantime, because I had like a few months downtime in between seasons, um, and I didn't really have to do anything. So I found out this was a period where I was particularly obsessed with wrestling. I was watching it. I was watching everything that I could. I was watching Raw. I was. I believe this was also. I don't remember if this is the beginning of Nitro. It was right around the time before Nitro started. I know that. So I was starting to watch WCW, which I never did as a kid, um, because we didn't get it in New Jersey. All I got was WWF. Um, so I was watching WCW, and at the I was even going so far as to I had subscribed to this uh, at the time. It was this satellite service called Prime Star. And basically, I, it was the one way, living in Southern California, that I could get Madison Square Garden Channel from the East Coast while I was living on the West Coast. And ECW was airing on MSG Network at that time. So I got that just, you know, I was paying, like, I don't even know how much. It was, like, 75 bucks a month or something like that, just so I could watch ECW um, at that time, to give you an idea of how obsessed I was with wrestling. Uh, so... I had this downtime in between seasons and I did a little research and I also got some information from Joel Gertner, uh, who at the time, this was before he had been, before he worked with ECW. We, at the time we were just a couple of fans who had kind of connected on the prodigy, uh, wrestling boards, uh, to, to, to throw out a, a blast from the past, uh, the, the old prodigy online service, which was before America online and um, I had met him through the boards, and, and I had asked him about if he knew of any wrestling schools, um, because just for a group, I, I had always wanted to wrestle a match in front of people. I always was a performer, like all through high school and college and beyond. Even when I was a writer, I was still an actor. I did a lot of acting and performing. So I always, I had a, uh, you know, I had like a, a, a bug up my ass. I always wanted to wrestle a match in front of an audience. And I didn't care if it was five people or 5,000 people. I just wanted to wrestle a match. Um, and Joel Gertner, Joel Gertner turned me on to this gym called Slammer's Wrestling Gym that was in Southern California. And uh, I, it wasn't far from where I lived. So I went and I called and I made an appointment. I checked it out and it was like so many places that you see online now, uh, not online, but so many places that you see now, you know, the, the, the wrestling dojo in the industrial park, you know, with the big garage door that opens up and there you've got the ring in there. And uh, uh, I started training there. I started learning how to be a wrestler and, uh, and getting the crap kicked out of me. And um, after a while, it didn't take too long before I was wrestling matches because they, they used to do their own cards every every Sunday they they put on a card um, and people would come in to watch the matches and after a few months of training I was wrestling you know matches on those on those shows and one thing led to another and I just kept doing it so even after even after uh, you know weird science came back and I was working during the week you know on the weekends I was I could be anywhere in Southern California wrestling matches um, you know, I'm going into pitch meetings in Hollywood with bleached blonde hair down to the middle of my back. Um, and, you know, I would walk in and the, the, the producers or the executives would say, what are you, a wrestler? And I'd say, actually, yeah. And it was a great icebreaker. <laughs> and uh, and it, it really, uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a cool thing. And um, I did it more and more. And I loved it. I had a blast. It was a great way to, to, to just, you know, really... Uh, um, really stay in touch with, with, with that aspect of physicality. It was something that I really loved and something I was missing because beyond that, my life was so sedentary. You know, I was a writer and a producer. I made my living sitting on my ass all day. So that was, that was how I got into it, and that was how I first started, started wrestling, as, you know, wrestling these small Southern California indies. Um, with a bunch of guys that, you know, most of the guys that I trained with, they went on to... Uh, they went on to XPW at the time uh, out there, which you know, if I hadn't have, if I hadn't have left, I might have ended up there too. I don't even know, but um, 
you know, I, I left Los Angeles when I got the offer to go work for WWF. Um, so that, that's what, that's what took me away from Southern California, which is <laughs> where I learned how to wrestle. Now, a lot of people don't know that you actually were a wrestler, and I believe your name was Bruce Bodine, which is an interesting name. <laughs> but it was, it was actually, it was beautiful Bruce Bodine. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned jumping from where you were then to the WWF. How did you land the job with the WWF, and how did that come about? Because you were writing, and then right. all of a sudden you become a writer for them. Well, um, at the time, you know, my my career as a writer, producer in Los Angeles was actually, you know, it was going up and up and up. Um, and but as my as my career was on the upward track, my my kind of like my love for the Hollywood was on the downward track. I just really didn't care for it. I'm I'm much more just like a a neighborhood guy from Jersey, and I just didn't really cotton to it quite so much. And I had to be on all the time, and uh, uh, it just it, you know, I, I just really didn't care for it. So um, I was starting to get, I was starting to to be disillusioned with um, writing, producing in the Hollywood scene. One day, I was on the phone with a uh, executive from USA Network that I had worked with uh, for when I was on Weird Science, um, and she knew that I was a wrestler. Uh, she knew that you know that I that was that was like my alter ego on weekends and, and certain nights of the week, and um, she always you know that was always a big a big kick for everybody. Um, and then one day, just as a goof, when I was talking to her, I said, "Hey, you know, next time you're talking to Vince McMahon, you know, throw my name out there, see if he's interested in, in uh, somebody to come aboard the creative end." Um, and, you know, I didn't think anything more about it, and I don't even think she took me quite seriously when I said it. It was just, you know, a good-natured, hey, don't forget, say something about Vince to me. Uh, say something about me to Vince. Um, but I didn't think twice about it. And then a couple weeks later, she called me back, and she said, um, I just want you to know, I, I did have the opportunity. I was talking to Vince, and I mentioned you to him, and he wants to meet you. Um and what, what it was is she, she told them all about me, and um, I had, at that time, both sides of what he was looking for. I was a TV writer, TV producer. I was a professional. I was a storyteller. I understood television. I understood showmanship. I understood, you know, uh, uh, how, to tell, how to tell stories. But at the same token, I also was, you know, one of the boys, and I also understood the wrestling industry, and I understood... Uh, the the you know how the how the wrestling industry worked. So um, having both sides of that made me somebody that Vince wanted to meet. So that's what happened. He flew me out to the uh, the King of the Ring uh, the, in '98. That was uh, it was the King of the Ring when uh, Undertaker and Mankind had the, the legendary Hell in a Cell match. And that was essentially my first day with the company. Even though I hadn't got hired, I just flew out. That was like a meet and greet kind of day. I flew out. I got to meet Vince. I got to meet Vince Russo. I got to meet everybody. And I basically just hung out backstage because it was a pay-per-view. It was a big deal. You know, nobody was going to, you know, waste their time with me that day, which I completely understood. But then the next night, um, I stayed through, uh, you know, through the following night's Raw, um, so the next day, I was invited to participate. I was invited to, you know, throw out ideas in the production meeting if I had any. And I also, you know, I was working with Russo on some pre-tapes, and then I was given a couple of pre-tapes myself to just go and produce myself with some talents and promos. Nothing complicated, but just a, a couple of promos. But, you know, just being able to have that kind of trial by fire. And, and at the time, I wasn't even thinking Oh, this is a this is a, a, a on the fly job interview. I just thought I was helping out, and I thought that I, you know, it was it was a it, this was the the dream come true. I was getting a chance to play with the action figures that I had always looked at on the TV, and I was getting a chance to finally play with them. Um, so after it was over, I didn't think twice about it. It was just you know it was a, it was an amazing experience, and I loved it. I had a great time, and thank you very much. And I went home. And a couple of days later, I got a call from Vince McMahon, and he said, how'd you like to do this for a living? And I, on, the, on the spot, I made the decision and, you know, 
my my wife and I, we up and packed up and left Los Angeles and moved out to Connecticut and and uh and the rest is history. <laughs> that that's a great <laughs> great story about basically just getting your 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 job with WWE or WWF at that, that point. It's just an amazing story. But something very interesting that I'm always very curious of is when you're giving your ideas and, and you're you know you're writing for Vince, what is that process like? Like, do you come up with the idea, he finalizes it, or you know, basically how from A to Z, how does that process go? Well, I can tell you how it went. I can't tell you how it goes now because it's a very different. Right. I, you know, it's a, it's a very different process now because when I was doing it, there were three people who had anything to do with the show before we showed up at the building on Monday, and that was Vince Russo, me, and Vince McMahon. Uh, nobody else had anything, you know, any any anything to do with the, with the show. And the way it worked back then um, was. Vince Russo and I would get together for a day, and we we usually get together at his house, and we'd figure out what the show was going to be, what the different segments were, what the stories were we were going to tell, what angles, what vignettes, what matches, what finishes. Because we always had, you know, we had the the down the line, we had what we were shooting for for WrestleMania. Then we had the, the intermediate stop before that that we had to keep in mind was what's the pay-per-view at the end of the month? What are we what are we building toward with this week? And then we tried to have every segment of the match of the of the show somehow build a different storyline that was going to pay pay off at the pay-per-view this month. Um, so we would come up with the show. And then we also usually the shows would come together fairly quickly. It's just then we would spend the rest of our time uh, that day, basically playing, uh, playing, uh, um, kind of like prosecuting attorney, taking turns, looking at the what we had and trying to pick holes in, because that's what Vince McMahon would do. So we would we would come up with kind of like ironclad defenses and 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 justifications and and rationalizations for everything that we had, so that way if he if he had a problem with this aspect of it, we had that covered. If he said, well, this isn't going to work, we had that covered. So that was where we spent the majority of our time. You know, we were like, a, like I said, we were like a couple of lawyers coming up with our case uh, for going in there, and that's what we did because invariably when we would go in um, and pitch him what we had for the following week's show because that's what we would do. The next day we would meet over at Vince McMahon's house. We sat at the long table in his dining room, and we would go over the shows. And um, he, we would pitch him what we had for the shows from top to bottom, from segment one to segment eleven, and uh, he would uh, he would you know either say okay or let's come back to that, or he would have a, a an issue or a question or a problem, and we would address it. And uh, nine times out of ten, usually we would have anticipated um, we would have anticipated what his issue was going to be with it. And we were able to deflect it. That one time out of ten that uh, that it didn't get that we couldn't deflect it. It wasn't that we hadn't anticipated his his uh, response. It's just he still wasn't interested in being deflected on it. Um, but that was the thing. We would bring him the the, the shows, and then he would basically sign off on stuff, or he would add little things to it, tweak things, and, and just bring a little bit more out of out of the moment that we were trying to build. Um, and it was a really, it was a fantastic collaborative process. And we really had a great dynamic, the three of us, uh, working together at that time, uh, which I think is a testament to, uh, you know, it shows in the uh, in the, the work that was on, on the air because, you know, we were, do- we were doing some, pretty outrageous stuff and some pretty complicated stuff and it was working really well because he was buying into it and he was supporting it. Um, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't like we were dragging him along uh, by any stretch of the imagination because nobody drags him along. If he, if he doesn't buy into something, he doesn't buy into it and, and it shows in the execution. Yeah, and it totally shows just based off of the results and the, you know, the absolute stamp it's left on the fabric of the entire genre of pro wrestling because, 
you know, the three of you and bouncing ideas and, and sitting with Vince McMahon on, on where it's going to go kind of dictated how wrestling has been perceived pretty much since you made your, you know, your, your in with the company in 1998. So when you first started and you went to your first TV, now what were you assigned to directly? Were you working with talent or were you working more just based on the overall show? Oh no, that was the thing. When I would go to TV, you mean you mean when we would get to the building to the Monday? Of when you would Raw? get to yeah, so the show's already kind of put together. When you get to the building, did you actually now switch and work maybe more on pre-tapes, or would you actually still help fine-tune the actual show? Oh well, uh, it would depend. It would depend because you know there's always we'd show up to the building and then you know sometimes Vince would talk himself out of something and we would have to change something that. He, he didn't. He, he decided now he didn't want to do, or he wanted to go a different direction. So sometimes we had to make those changes. Um, but usually, what it what it was is we would go in, um, we would have the production meeting, which is where we get together with everybody. You know, all not not the wrestlers, but everybody involved with the producing of the show, the TV crew, the uh, the agents who would be working on laying out the matches with with the wrestlers, um, all, the, all those people, uh, the directors, the, the the guys in the truck. Um, and we would go through the show from top to bottom, describe what was going to happen, um, go through it, uh, uh, really talk out the, the more complicated things and explain what we were looking for and what needed to happen so that way everybody was on the same page. Um, and then after the production meeting, if we, didn't need to, if we didn't need to tweak anything or revise anything based on concerns or, or problems or issues that were brought up at the production meeting, because that's what they're there for, um, then what we would be doing is we would, you know, Rousseau and I would each take a list of the pre-tapes and the vignettes and the scenes, the backstage stuff and the live shots, and we split them up, and he would take half and I would take the other half, and we would go and track down talent and shoot pre-tapes. And, uh, I mean, it was just, it was never ending. It was never ending. You know, we spend the whole day uh, tracking down talent and shooting pre-tapes. We usually would just get those done by the skin of our teeth before the show went live. And then during the show, while the show was live, we would always have a few live shots that we'd have to produce uh, uh, while while it was going on. So we had that. So by the time, you know, that, those days, we were going from like, you know, 9 a.m. And usually before 9 a.m. because of the fact that we're always uh, getting together with Vince McMahon before the production meeting and going over the show again. So, you know, we're say we're going from being conservative, 8 a.m., until after 11 o'clock, nonstop, um, because it never ends. And then when the show would be over, then Vince would want to go over the next day's show or the next week's show or what we were doing on the pay-per-view at the end of the month. So it, it was it was a uh, it was a blood from the, from a stone sort of a, a, a scenario. So now how about working with the talent and collaborating with them on actual content? Because we all remember your brief cameo appearance in Beyond the Mat, uh, talking with The Rock, uh, at literally walking, doing the old Aaron Sorkin, the walk and talk as you guys are uh, finishing up some details. But obviously we'll ask you about The Rock, but how was it overall collaborating with the talent on the actual content of a promo? Usually it was really good. I mean, it, it was once once we knew what we had on our hands with a particular talent, then we would know how to produce them and how to write their stuff. Certain talent needed to have, uh, needed to have every, every syllable scripted for them. Um, not, that they, not that they weren't good talkers or not that they couldn't, you know, couldn't work glib, but they just preferred it that way and they were better that way. Like a perfect example, Jeff Jarrett was one of those guys where he always wanted to have everything scripted out. He wanted to know, what do you want me to say, and I will deliver it. He would always knock it out of the park. Other guys, like Rock or Austin, you, they would just want bullet points, and that's all they needed. You give them bullet points of what you wanted them to hit, the points you wanted them to make, and they would make it, and they would make it within their, you know, within their character. They would put it together, and we would go over it with them, like that thing that you mentioned in Beyond the Mat. That was Rock and I basically reconvening after we had gotten together earlier in the day and I would have gone over the bullet points with him, but then we were getting back together because he was, he was giving back to me what he had in mind, what he had come up with 
based on the bullet points that I gave him earlier in the day. So that's what that relationship was like. So once you once you knew who who you know who could who could fly with bullet points and who needed to have everything scripted for them, that made it a lot easier. The worst thing is trying to get bullet points for somebody who needed everything scripted for them, or the flip side, somebody who really didn't need to have everything scripted for them, trying to give them a, a, a thorough script like they do with everybody these days. You know, everything, every syllable is scripted out, you, you can tell, on the air. And it just, you know, it kind of, for certain guys, it'll just strangle the life out of the promo. And it'll strangle the life out of what, out of their character. And it's very clear that what they're saying is not coming from them. It's coming from, you know, this piece of paper that they have been handed. So once you get that, once you figure out who who, who needs what, then you're in a good good shape to produce them very effectively um, and get the most out of them. Now, thinking of actual storylines and maybe even some character development that you were directly responsible for, can you think of anything off the top of your head within the WWF that you were directly responsible for? I mean, that's the thing. It's kind of like, uh, it, you know, pretty much everything from the time that I was there, I was directly involved um, in terms of in terms of you know producing it or uh, you know I don't even remember uh, um, half of what I did. Um, I'm trying to think. The uh, one of the one of the storylines that I thought was one of the one of the proudest, I guess you get that the proudest of one of the storylines we did was the whole rock double swerve at the Survivor Series Deadly Game because we had been building up to that for months, um, making everybody think that we were returning Rock Babyface. And, you know, the reveal at that pay-per-view was that, you know, not only what is Rock not a babyface, it's not just he just turned heel. He's never, he never was a babyface. He was, he was faking the whole, the whole time. The past three months, he had been acting like a babyface, but he knew where his loyalty lied, and that, that was with... Mr. McMahon and the corporation, and Rock was, was the anointed one who was going to be the corporate champion. So he went along with it and let everybody think that he was he was the people's champion, but that wasn't the case. So that whole build was one of my favorite things because it worked so well, because the audience so wanted Rock to be that babyface people's champion, and they were eating him up. Uh, you know, after after you know when he first was introduced and the whole die Rocky die thing. Um, and then finally, he got his heel heat back, and then as part of the uh, part of the nation, um, and then to turn him babyface out of that, that was that was an organic babyface move. The crowd wanted him to be a babyface; they wanted to cheer for him. So we kind of gave them that, thinking that you know they were they were eating it up with a spoon. The Rock as a babyface, and every time Rock got a babyface pop, each week it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and to the point where every every Monday night when Rock was going out there, Russo and I made a point to go out into the house because we wanted to feel the pop when he came out, the babyface pop that he got, because we knew the bigger those pops got, that's 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 the heat he was going to get when we finally revealed that he really had been had been jackassing around and and. Uh, and, and fooling everybody all along. Um, so that that was really, that was very rewarding because that, that played out perfectly, I thought. Um, and that was, I think, one of, one of my favorite storylines that we did because also it's something that was, it was a really good slow burn that we had been laying in little, little nuggets and details all along so that way one rock after rock revealed that he really had been a heel all along, he, uh, that next night on Raw, you know, basically showed footage of little things that, that little clues that we had laid in all along that showed that he really wasn't a baby face at the time, but he was letting everybody think that he was because that helped him get where he is. Now, that was great, great moment and really set <laughs> off Rock basically into superstardom from that moment on. What was Rock like behind the scenes? Was he, you know, a fun-loving guy pulling ribs, or was he, you know, different than what we think he would have been? At the time, you know, this is when Rock was really first 
first ascending into the stratosphere. He was one of the one of the easiest guys to work with. He was a pleasure to work with. He was funny. He was entertaining, um, and I mean entertaining backstage. He was just a really fun presence and very easy to work with. Uh, he was one of the guys that I really always look forward to working with every week because he he I don't know there was something about him where he had just a natural confidence that was kind of missing from so many so many guys in in the industry. Whereas because you know this is an industry that's based on a lie and there's so many you know so many workers in this industry besides working in the ring that you know doing their work behind the scenes backstage there's so much politicking and so much backstabbing and so much ugliness and rock was one of those guys that he never really felt like he never really felt like he needed to descend to that he always came across as if he was he, he kind of had the confidence that he's going to get where he's going to get, and he's going to get there in his own time, and that's cool. He was not looking to he, he was not looking to uh, uh, you know the, he was not looking to, to tear anybody down to get where he needed to go, and he was also he he he, he was patient, and I think that's where I I, I I'm very different from from other people in the industry where. It just that confidence allowed him to be patient and uh, allowed him to get where he was getting organically. Um, like the flip side was, you know, Austin, who was another guy who was great to work with, um, but he was very different from Rock because Austin was very Austin knew what he had. Austin had struggles and scrapes, and you know, for for years to try and get where he finally had gotten when he was Stone Cold Steve Austin. And once he was up there, he really did not. He was he was really wary of everything because he didn't want anything to happen to affect in his position uh, before before it naturally was time to to, to step down. Um, so he was he was a guy who like the, the 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 example I always use is you know when it comes to like the weekly promos. Rock was a guy who every week was out there trying something different because he felt, eh, you know, let me try this and see if this gets over. Right? I have, I have, I have five things that are over with the crowd. Let me see if I can get another two. So he would just try different things every week, try different catchphrases, try different different types of promos. Whereas Austin had his act and he stayed with it. He had his catchphrases. He wasn't looking to do anything new, and he wasn't looking to do anything that was going to rock the boat. He just wanted to stay where he was, which was right at the top of the mountain. Like there were things, like we had to talk him into the whole beer truck thing. I did, Russo did, but he was he was kind of like you know he he didn't understand why he was doing that, and and that's what we had to deal with on certain 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 weeks to try and convince him why it was a good thing to do to do some of these things and what the reaction will be. Whereas, you know, from his point of view is, well, I don't want to do anything that's going to make me look stupid because if I look stupid, then I, I you know, I won't be the, the, the badass that I'm perceived to be and that's going to that's gonna knock me down a peg. So, whereas, you know, the beer truck was one of the things that, again, you know, made him bigger and bigger. Um, but, you with a, when when you have that the way he was looking at things, he had to had to be convinced of that. You know, and those are two guys that amongst a roster, obviously they are the leaders and, and the standouts, and you know, endless material, I'm sure. But the roster at that time, it was like each guy was just dying to break out. But out of all the additional characters that you worked with during that period, is there anybody that stands out to you as a personal favorite that you worked with? There's there so many. I mean, you, you look at the you look at the roster that Jim Ross assembled that we were working with. You know, you have Rock and Austin on top, not just one, but two of you know two two once in a lifetime talents. That you know, I'm sorry, you know, it's it, it, you know John Cena has been on top for a long time, but it's almost like by default because there's been nobody else. Um, 
but Rock and Austin were were both, you know, all-time top box office attractions, and they were both on top at the same time. Then you go down from there, and we had Mick Foley, and then we had The Undertaker, and we had Kane, and we had DX, and we had The Brood, and we had, you know, Edge and Christian, and we had, um, I mean, it was just, you just go on and on and on, The Godfather and Val Venus and, you know, even even guys like Dan Severn and Steve Blackman, you know, guys from, from MMA that we brought in to get to have something else on the card. So we had such an amazing talent roster that, you know, they all were, they all were awesome to work with. Some of, some of them, you know, are, are, were easier to work with than others, but the goal at the end of the day for everybody was the same, which is let's make this show number one, because for the longest time it wasn't, and everybody was on board. Everybody wanted this to be, you know, we were on this ship, and we knew we were headed somewhere different. So everybody was, had, signed off, had signed up for that. And everybody was working together, which is, you know, it was that, that was what was really different between WWE or WWF at the time. And then when we went to work for WCW, which was an entirely different culture, it was the exact opposite. Nobody cared about the company. Nobody cared about the product. Everybody was there. They all had guaranteed contracts. So they didn't have to care because they still got paid. Even if they didn't go out in front of the cameras, they still got paid. So... You know, there everything we had to, had to try and make anybody do was pulling teeth because nobody wanted to do anything because well I could do that or I could not and still get paid the same amount so I think I'm gonna not and you 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 put that into competition with the hunger that the WWE WWF roster had at the time. There's no comparison. The WWF, that's, that's why the WWF was able to, to come back and absolutely destroy WCW um, after they, 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 you know, stemmed the bleeding and swung the, the Monday Night War the other direction. Exactly right. And, you know, and it was only as funny as it is, only a short time after, uh, you know, the whole boom of the entire industry happened. Now, we, we, you know, we know the story of the jump, uh, with you and Russo to WCW in 99. Um, it just briefly, before we get into some of the meat of what happened in WCW, uh, just if you could, just going into the actual departure, uh, going from one to the other, you know, how fast did it really come about? Well, on Friday I was working for WWF, and on Sunday I was working for WCW. Is that fast enough? Um, yeah, that's good. Okay, was, uh, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, no, just, it, was, it was really fast. We were, we, were, you know, we were, we were unhappy. I mean, just to to, to kind of go through it a little quickly, we were we were unhappy at the time. Uh, they had added SmackDown. They had effectively doubled our workload without any acknowledgement of of you know is this is this something that will be a problem or not without asking us if we wanted more help or anything like that. Just just added another two hour show, which completely doubled our workload and expected us to keep up the same pace that we were keeping up. And, you know, we were already we were already burning the candle at both ends just doing the, the one show every week. Um, because it you know, it was still just me and Russo. It wasn't, you know, like they have now where they have like twenty five writers on the staff. So um Russo was really frustrated for numerous reasons that he's gone into in a whole bunch of interviews. Um, uh, but he he was very unhappy. He had approached Vince McMahon, was not happy with Vince McMahon's response, which was uh, a, a bit callous, in my opinion, uh, uh, Vince, Vince McMahon's response was. Um, so Russo sent out some feelers down to WCW and uh, flew down there on a Friday night, told me about it Friday afternoon, because it's something that, you know, he sent out feelers Friday morning, they arranged for him to play out Friday night. He talked to me Friday afternoon, told me what he was going to do. And I told him, well, if you're going to do that, um, ask them if they want me to because I'm, uh, I'm not going to last here if you're going. And because at that point, I had pretty much had my fill of Vince McMahon. I was really, I was, I was burnt out to a crisp. So uh, they flew me down Saturday. They had met with Vince on Saturday. 
Um, and then they flew me down. We went over our contract Sunday morning, signed the contract Sunday afternoon, and that was it. Because uh, there's no there's no giving your two week notice when you're in the middle of the Monday Night Wars. So uh, the thing was, all along from from day one when I started with the company, you know, I was a, I was a Hollywood writer, um, and I would always ask Vince, "Don't we need a contract for my employment?" He was like, "No, no, that's not how we do things." So I was like, "Okay, all right." And then there was a couple other points where I was like, "You sure you want to do a contract?" some kind of a contract. Like there was one point when I almost left the company and he, he offered me more money to stay, so I did. And I said, you sure you don't want to do a contract? He's like, no, no, that's okay. We, we don't do things that way here. I was like, okay. So we were completely able to make that jump because neither of us were under contract. And neither of us, they, you know, there was no sort of non-compete, anything like that. So um, that was part of, you know, part of the reasons why it was so easier for us for, to make that jump so quickly was because there was nothing preventing us from doing it. Uh, and, and part of that, I think, is, you know, is, is arrogance. Why would anybody want to leave here? Um, well, we had lots of reasons why we wanted to leave, and we had absolutely nothing keeping us there because there was no repercussions coming from a, a, a non-compete clause that we had signed, and there was no contract that we were in breach of. So we were free to go at any point, and we took advantage of that, and we went. Now, you debuted in WCW almost, I, I'll dare I say, as an awesome character, yet controversial character. First, <laughs> you and Russo were the quote-unquote powers that be, and, you know, it was basically mm-hmm. make fun of Vince and Shane and, and you know, Pat and, and Jerry Briscoe, and then, of course, of course, Oklahoma, which was a mock of Jim Ross. Now, I guess it's very controversial to some people, but I personally thought it was absolutely hilarious. Now, what are your thoughts on that character and the quote-unquote controversy that surrounds it? The bottom line is this. As far as the controversy that surrounds it, there's controversy because there are people who don't like me because they don't want to like me for whatever reason, and that's fine. That's, that's on them. But when it comes to, when it comes to the, the, the person that it hurt, which is Jim Ross, um, who is somebody who I've spoken to about this on numerous times, numerous occasions. I've apologized to him both publicly and privately, and he's accepted numerous times my apology. Jim has said numerous times it's water under the bridge. It's the wrestling business. He holds, he bears no ill will toward me about it. Um, I was on his podcast this past fall, and it was it was absolutely awesome getting a chance to just just chat with him for a couple hours because I hadn't spoken to him in years since he had that emergency surgery uh, quite a few years back, and I went out of my way to get in contact with him because I felt that the WWE time was really treating him shitty, and I really wanted to just offer him my support. So that was the last time I had spoken to him. So it was probably, probably maybe closer to 10 years. Um, so that said, that said, I think that it uh, – hold on one second. Uh Somebody else was trying to call me in, but I didn't want to get the wrong button by mistake. Um, uh, that said, you know, the character, I think the character could have worked on one level in that, yeah, it was it was poking fun of the WWE's play-by-play guy, a beloved character, a beloved person in the industry, and we were looking to get heat with this character. Um, where it went over the line was when, you know, in mocking J.R.'s fellow palsy. Um, and that is that is the thing that I, if I could take back anything in my life, that's what it would be. Um, because that was horrible. It was tone deaf on my part. It was poor. It was just, it was just a horrible, horrible thing to make fun of a man's affliction like that. And, you know, I've said it many, many times before. I was a much younger, more foolish man back then. Um, had I, you know, the opportunity to do it again, there's no way I would do that face again. Um, but that was something that when Russo and I went over it before I went out the first time, I was going over my promo with him, and he said, where's the face? You're going to do the face, right? And I, I said, no, I'm not going to do the face. He he was convinced that I had to, you know, that, that the character wasn't going to be worth doing without the face. And I'm not throwing him under the bus here. This is something that, you know, we've, t- we've talked about on his podcast. Um, 
So he said, look, if you're not going to do it, I, 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 think we, I think we're done. I don't think we, we can do this because that's the whole point of doing this is to, to fire off some shots and to, and to make some noise here. Um, because we're, now we're number two, so we've got we to we gotta take some wilder swings here. So I, I thought about it, and I was like, okay, screw it. I'm a whore. I'll do it. Uh, so I went out and I did it, and um, and as predicted, you know, people lost their minds over it, uh, and and rightfully so. But the, the 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 good thing was, a couple of weeks later, the standards and practices from Turner came to us and said, you can keep doing the character, but you've got to stop doing the face because uh, we're getting complaints from people, and uh, it's cruel, and 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 we don't want you doing it anymore. So uh, that to me, that was that was. Hallelujah! That was awesome news because I could go out there then and continue doing the character, which I thought that character kind of could have and did to a certain extent, kind of take on a little life of its own, and it was and it was fun and it was it was good heat for the character. So, uh, but I, I didn't want the face, didn't need the face. So when it was taken away from me, it was kind of like a, a weight came off my chest, and I could really kind of have more fun with the character out there. Um, so that's what we did, and. And the character did did a bunch of stuff. The character, and they kept bringing the character back when when we wanted to get some heat for, and then bring out somebody. Like I remember one time I went out just to cut a promo because we were bringing Sid out. And Sid came out and choked on him, um, but they wanted to bring out somebody to get some heat so that way Sid would get a huge pop when he chokes slams him. So that they sent me out to do that. Um, but yeah, I, I would I have done it again. Uh, Maybe, but definitely would not have done it the cruel way. I would not. I, I would not have made it a. I would not. I, it, like if I was given that ultimatum again, I would never would have done the character. Now it's it's definitely a funny character. I mean, the face aside, Jim Ross obviously he has no problem with you or the character, and that's basically all that really matters if you really think about it. So I just think personally, I just think it's so funny. I mean, Tony Schiavone, you could tell when you were out there with him, he's laughing at some of the stuff where you're saying, I mean, B-teamers, speaking sound bites, you're pumping up Dr. This, Steve Williams, you're literally going over every bowl game that he ever played in. I mean, the pinata on the pole match, the Hoobie played at Tijuana State. I mean, so funny, great stuff. But one guy that you had a feud with that I think is very interesting uh, was Vampiro. Can you talk a little bit about mm. Vampiro? And, and I know you mentioned his Twitter uh, handle as well. Yeah, because I, I didn't even realize it, but and I don't even know if he follows me, but I'm following him on Twitter. But his his uh, his Twitter handle is Van. I I I can't read it without thinking Vampiro Vampira, because it's, Van, <laughs> it's Vampiro underscore Vampiro. So I got I have to imagine that it's Vampiro Vampira because I would always I would always deliberately mispronounce his his name, and then you know I would always do call everything three times. But I guess you can't have a Twitter handle that's longer than a tweet. So I guess Vampiro, Vampiro, Vampiro wouldn't have been that good. <laughs> that is definitely, that is great. <laughs> now, you, at the end, uh, basically you were there for the death of WCW. I mean, you were, uh, you were on the booking committee for a while and you were a road agent. What was the death of WCW like? And did you feel like, you know, not happy about it, but did you feel like it was eminent? Oh, dude, the, the death of WCW, WCW was coughing up blood from the time we walked in there. Uh, that was the thing that we didn't know. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the metaphor I always use is what we weren't told when we signed with the company is that we had just booked passage on the Titanic and it had already hit the iceberg and was taking on water. But we didn't realize that when we signed up. So the death of WCW, I, I guess it was just, it was finally died because every three months there was some sort of major upheaval where the entire company was in disarray. Like we came in, and I'm sure that was major upheaval for the company. Three months almost to the day, three months after we came in, Russo got booted out of the of the uh, being in charge of creative, and they formed a committee. Um, so I ended up staying and working on the committee because I didn't have the you know, a clause in my contract that would allow me to sit home. Russo did, so he, so he, you know, opted out, and that was like the beginning of a of a long period of neg- negativity between he and I. Um, so then, I'm on the, co- the the committee at that point. Three months after that, that's when Russo and Bischoff were brought in together. Three months after that, 
Bischoff left. Three months after that, Russo left, and Bischoff made it clear he was going to be buying the company. And pretty much three months after that is when the, uh, the everything shit the bed, and that's when we're looking at the death of WCW. So it was just it was three months of just. Every three months, just something was complete upheaval and chaos, and it just was like it was it was miserable, absolutely miserable. It's the sort of thing where you can't really do your job because you're so busy wondering if you're going to have one. Gotcha, definitely. Now, uh, I did a three-hour workshop with you, and that went by fast. So you imagine how fast the last hour just went by for you. Zoom by. Well, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yep, I, I was going to say, I have so much more I want to ask you. I mean, even as far as getting into some movies and stuff, I, I even wanted to get in further. But we'll definitely get into that next time. Just one last question. just wanted to know, what would you consider your lasting legacy on the wrestling business? Wow, lasting legacy. The fact that I'm not in it anymore. <laughs> Could you hear that, or did my little alarm go yeah, off in yeah. here? <laughs> Yeah, we heard, we're digesting that. it. <laughs> I, think, I, I think about that. Hmm, the fact you're not in it. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the sort of thing where, you know, everything's got its time. Like, I, 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 you know, I get all the time I have people tweeting at me and saying, you know, oh, WWE needs you. Why don't you come back? Do a Russo, come back. And, you know, I think that there was a time for what we did. Um, Nowadays, I think I think WWE needs a lot right now. I don't know if it's necessarily me. I think that I could offer something to it, but I'm not looking to do that anymore because I need I need a little bit more security in my life, a little bit more stability. But you know, what would be my lasting contribution? My contribution to the attitude there got to be. I mean, that's the thing that everybody still talks about. That's the thing that that's made so many of the fans that are still watching to this day. So if that's the case, if I could have had something to do with that, with, you know, just doing my job, because, you know, at the at the end of the day, back then, like, we weren't creating the Attitude Era. We were writing TV. We were, each week, we were writing a new TV show. And then as soon as that was done, we had to write another one for the next week and then another one for the next week. And there was never a moment to stop and smell the roses, never a moment to be aware of what we were doing, of the scope of what we were doing, of the size of what we were doing. It was just, we're just, okay, that was yesterday. What's next? What are we doing tomorrow? So looking back on it, yeah, while we were doing all, while we were busy turning out those shows, we ended up turning out the Attitude Era, too, in the meantime. Um, so I think that's kind of cool, and I'll, 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 I'll take whatever, uh, whatever uh, um, participation I had in that. Awesome. Well, Ed, thanks so much. And just before we let you go, just get out uh, get out any plugs on where we can find Ed Ferrara. Well, the only real plug I have is uh, I'll plug my, my Twitter handle. Anybody wants to uh, follow me on Twitter, I'm at the Ed Ferrara, and Ferrara is spelled F as in Frank, E-R-R-A-R-A, at the Ed Ferrara. So give me a follow. Um, but um, thank you so much for having me, guys. And uh, Chad, it's really nice to virtually meet you. And John, it was good to get a chance to <laughs> chat with you again. And yep, um, let's let's definitely uh, let's book a return match for the future. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Ed.